and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good stormy morning, everybody. And uh, as Ed Kelly said, this is Paul Rudy's On the Money. And I'm here as fortunate to have Dr. Fred Gertz in the studio again today. Dr. Fred, good, good to, to see you. Back. I bet there will be might be a question or two today on the new budget slash right. tax hike, et cetera. I know I want a couple things I want to cover on that. And I'm here with certified financial planner professional David Rudy. Thanks for having me. And certified financial planner professional Paul Rudy. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And David and Paul work with me at Rudy Wealth Management here in uh, Champaign-Urbana. Uh, you can call in with your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351 5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. No one should make any investment decisions without first consulting his or her own financial advisor and conducting his or her own, his or her own research and due diligence. So, uh, well, Dr. Fred, I, I think let's start off a little bit with should we feel better or worse now that we seem to have a budget after two years? Well, I think yeah, uh, slightly better, but not uh, necessarily uh, very happy. Uh, it's been called, and they've been talking about it for two years, uh, a grand bargain. It's really not a grand bargain. It's a very small bargain. And it's uh, a kind of uh, kick the can down the road uh, arrangement, which we've been doing for a long time. But uh, sometimes kicking a can down the road is better than sure. uh, uh, getting stuck. So we were in a situation where... Uh, we were spending it at close to the same rate we've been in the past, but our tax revenue went down substantially when the income tax expired. So we were running up, in addition to the long-run uh, issues we have, we were uh, running up uh, $5 million or more a year of uh, unpaid bills. So, again, something had to happen. And also, I think the uh, uh, impact was starting to be felt in terms of places like uh, health care providers not being paid for uh, six months, a year, a year and a half, and, uh, and certainly for people south of here, uh, eastern Illinois was experiencing really difficult times and it created instability about trying to recruit students when there uh, was uncertainty about the future. So those kind of things are, are uh, positive. Uh, on the negative, obviously, we're paying higher taxes, but we were spending the money anyway. So if you're going to spend it, you need to need to pay right. for it. And we still have this lingering long-term problem that we all know about of uh, structural deficit, including pensions and things of that sort. Does this begin to cure the backlog issue? Only if they uh, uh, do what the, the General Assembly wants to do, and, and it's not clear whether Governor Ronner will, will do it or not, and that is to borrow $6 billion to pay off the bills, because it does make a lot of sense right now, because we have unpaid bills that are accruing 12, 8 or 12% yeah. interest. And we could borrow money for much less than that. So the goal, I think, of the uh, of the budget was to uh, borrow $6 billion to make headway and then pay it back fairly quickly. But to do that, it has to have the uh, uh, concurrence of the governor beyond the uh, the veto situation. So that's not clear what's going to happen there. And if we were to gain junk bonds, junk bond status, that obviously means a much higher cost of borrowing. Yeah. I'm not sure how much higher, but certainly higher. But uh, still... Uh, by in most people's minds, a pretty 
small premium for the, the kind of situation that people believe the state's in. Is that because a state can't go bankrupt, so well, people I mean, figure I, one way or another they're going to get paid back, even though it's junk bond? Well, and, and the other thing is that um, the, the state does have capacity that they haven't used. Now, we don't want to sure. necessarily use it in terms of higher taxes, but if a, a firm is in a situation where um, they're close to being insolvent, they can't go to their customers and say, we're, we're raising your prices by 20%. Take, and everyone pays. Right. Obviously, they can't do that, or they would have done it. So the state does have some uh, levers to pull that no one else has except the federal government. So I think it, it makes this uh, more secure for, for lenders. Do you think this pushes more people out of the state? We had a pretty good wave when they did the temporary tax right. uh, for a few years. I, I could be off yep. by, I don't know how long it lasted. It seemed like it was a few years. And I mean, I, I just speaking from my clientele, I had probably a half dozen of my clients take residency elsewhere, high earners. Yeah. Uh, and it, my sense is talking to the ones that didn't, a good number of those, probably another yeah. half dozen or have been considering it. And they've just mm-hmm. been waiting for something to happen to kind of push them that way. Is that, is that a, well, is I, that a real danger for the state of Illinois? Or is it just more of a, well, it's not ideal, but it's something to consider. And again, uh, it depends on uh, situations. Uh, retirement income is still not taxed in Illinois. So retirees, who are getting uh, uh, pensions and uh, qualified distributions are, are not going to be subject to that. Uh, other people may, but uh, you know, 1% is a lot in some ways, but uh, relocating is also a, sure. a pretty uh, major kind of hurdle. So yeah. I think the, the, the longer-term situation is uh, one where we have to get our house in order, and I think most people would be willing to pay the extra 1% or whatever if we actually had a stable uh, state government. But isn't that the rub? Isn't the, yeah. I, there's a lot of the issues a uh, number of friends or clients have is, look, it's not so much the increase in the tax, it's are they going to be responsible with right. it? Are they responsible right. with our money? And I think that is the, that's the real right. stickiness right. around. And the other thing too, uh, uh, moving out is a big deal, but uh, if you're moving into Illinois, you're buying into all our old problems. So I think it may have more impact in terms of attracting. And I think uh, Illinois, and I think Illinois, struggling already with as far as wage growth has been re- one of the weaker right. states. Uh, job growth, one of the weaker states. Yeah, you know. the, yeah the strange uh, anomaly there is that uh, our unemployment rate is really low now. It's down yeah. to uh, just slightly above the national average after being one and a half percentage points above for many years. So. Uh, we haven't had huge wage growth, wage growth, but the unemployment situation actually is quite a bit better here. And when I kind of turn to the national level, it just still looks to me like on balance, no real signs of recession that you would normally see. Um, I was always, I always learned to try to look at the yield curve and yeah. compare a two-year treasury to a 10-year yield. And if the 10-year yield's lower, that's called an inverted curve. And that tends to lead by quite some time. Every recession, at least in modern times, we're not there yet. Um, And even if we were there, the lag can be as much as at least a year or maybe two to three years. So that suggests to me that at least 2018, we're probably, other than some kind of shock, uh, don't have to worry about a recession. And then we have unemployment claims that continue in a declining trend. Compensation growth is one of the highest in the past eight years, uh, 2.6% year over year in the first quarter. Demand seems to be strong. We have, in May, real personal consumption growth, which is a big driver of the economy, as I recall, uh, up 2.7% on a real basis. That means after inflation adjustment. Housing sales made a nine-and-a-half-year high in March. Sales grew 9% year-over-year in May. 
manufacturing, well, it's, you know, while it's improving, it's still got a long, 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 long way to go and it may never get there. Right. I don't think anybody's waiting for it to. And core inflation rate seems like it's near, but under the Fed's 2% target. So right. from a from a big picture, at least from an economy, not so much the stock market because they don't necessarily go together in step, uh, it seems like we're, you know, right. it seems like we're seems like we're in the same place we were a year ago, two years ago. Yeah, it's ago, kind of weird. Uh, I went to a, a conference recently, and uh, the people there talking about the economy were basically saying the same thing that uh, we've been saying, although they didn't, they didn't use the plow horse they should. term. But uh, <laughs> it was that uh, we're growing uh, not as fast as we'd like, but pretty steadily. Uh, no particular signs of, uh, of uh, uh, danger on the horizon. And so uh, near-term... Uh, uh, kind of stable outlook, long term. Obviously, uh, we're going to have a downturn at some point, but not not in the foreseeable future. Now, the, the strange thing is that uh, you have to write your articles in the Wall Street Journal. So now the articles are things are so calm that maybe on the the verge of something bad happening. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing my it newsletter. Can't be right, I, actually, I'm writing my newsletter, a quarterly newsletter, and just something's just bothering me. And I, you know, it's I think it's almost this complacency, and the, it's been 160 eight days now since we've had a five percent dip you know or uh, i won't even call it a correction in the stock market a little five percenter uh which is one of the longer three uh at least in modern times and 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 so i i'm titling the uh my newsletter uh, it's an old john wayne movie and i can't remember i think it was the texan is really early <laughs> maybe in the mid-30s or something and uh and he said, hey, it's sure is quiet out there. And John Wayne says, yeah, a little too quiet. Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost that's it's it. And I was going to ask you then because of that, because I, you know, 10 years goes by. We think of the Great Recession, 2008, 2009. At that time, I didn't see a recession either. So yeah. but I don't recall many people seeing it. Is that the kind of shock that just comes out of sort of nowhere, even though one or two people? I think it uh uh, that one uh, is a, a one of a kind, not one of a kind, but a rare situation where the uh, financial crisis uh, brought about uh, and the recession kind of came together, which was unusually severe and from a different source. Most recessions are more not as dramatic. Uh, in the past, it's often been part of money tightening. The Federal Reserve uh, sees inflation uh, becoming a problem. They tighten money. We have a, a short kind of downturn, which is no big deal. Uh, so our, our recessions of uh, uh, 1990, 91, and 2000, 2001 were really very, very modest. And so I could see that kind of, uh, of thing happening again. But okay. uh, obviously, uh, I don't expect a financial crisis, but no one ever expects a financial crisis. And I don't think anybody could suggest that yeah. the Federal Reserve is tightening right, right. now. I think no. they're just getting less loose. Right. Uh, and so it just seems like. There's some headwinds uh, that I've noticed when I right. there's a couple surveys about investor sentiment, and some of them are above fifty percent. And that's usually uh, it's kind of one of those things. Yeah. It's too many but, people are a little too comfortable right now. Yeah, you also have to uh, uh, not not assume what's happening now is going to continue. It used to be you know, uh, we'd have a downturn and we'd recover in uh, three or four months, which is unusual by historical standards. Now we have a couple days of down, and then we're yeah. Back up again, and so you can't expect to recover every time in two or three days after the after a hundred or two hundred or three hundred uh, point loss on the Dow. 
Yeah, so I'm trying to prepare prepare my clients. Of course, I did last quarter too. So I've I call them uh, lifeboat drills because it's yeah. too late by the time you hit the iceberg. And when <laughs> it comes to investors, you know, I always say surprise is the mother of panic, and uh, and it's panic that gets people to do things. So I'm always trying to get out in front of it. <clears throat> For years, uh, when everybody was pervasively pessimistic. I was writing articles to the contrary, and now that everybody seemingly is kind of happy, I wouldn't say they're exuberant by any, I don't see that, and, and I've always said great bull markets don't end with articles about the market being overvalued, uh, really to the contrary, but it's just, it's just been a while. We get a normal correction of around 15% on average about once every 15 months, so it's been quite some time since, I, it's my belief, and I'm writing about this, that it would, I think it would be cleansing health restoring if we could have a nice correction but right. so again it's just this is a good time for people to look at their asset allocation which is their mix between in the biggest sense between stocks and bonds and make sure it's aligned with what you want it to happen and if it's if it's gotten stretched into the stock market i know that what happens to people is the higher the stock market goes the you know less risk averse they get and the, they're more willingness to accept risk and it's kind of counterintuitive you shouldn't be that way it's a really good time when it's nice and calm to look at and visit that it's not a market call it's just make sure assess your asset allocation and make sure that it's aligned and i think just being aware that kind of the recent past isn't normal i think human beings just by our very nature tend to change our expectations for the future based on what happened in the recent past. And that's recent bias, right? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, looking back, like you said, 10 years or so, because the market had gone through a big decline, it was like everyone thought returns were going to be low going forward. The market was always this incredibly volatile thing that they had to be worried about putting their money into. And then it didn't pan out that way because it, it it's never, I mean, it's not normal for things to be that bad. It's not normal for things right. to be this smooth sailing. It's normal to be somewhere in between and kind of have those extreme events. And you just have to always maintain proper perspective and proper expectations that, you know, like you said, we're going to have these maybe 10 to 15 percent declines on average once a year and just be prepared at all times for those, regardless of what's happened in and, the past. And almost, and I think, of, I think we've done a good job getting our clients accustomed to that to a point where they don't seem to get concerned about fluctuation uh, that much. But I think in some ways, if, if, you're, if you have a portfolio that you're looking for a higher expected return, because of that you have a higher percentage of your portfolio in the great companies of America and the world, um, you know, it's, it, almost learn to embrace the fluctuation. Uh, some people call it risk. I don't. I call it fluctuation around a rising uptrend, permanently rising uptrend, and recognize that the reason we get, historically speaking anyway, the premium return is because of that premium fluctuation. But it's built in, and you, you, and it's always very healthy. I found it's healthy as an investor. If you're going to be a successful investor, well, probably first thing I would say is you need to have a plan, and then your portfolio becomes a slave to that plan. But if you can just anticipate and recognize that they're just built into the process and learn to ignore them. That's the difference between people that make it and people that don't make it. And I think also uh, one of the concerns that uh, people are talking about is that uh, the search for higher yields had, uh, led some people, probably not people you advise, but into uh, somewhat more risky, higher return uh, situations. Those may be more vulnerable for, for downturns, too. There's no question about that. I, I've always said, uh, at, after 33 years, I, I continue to say it, 
that I see more people lose money reaching for yield, a higher near-term return. Okay, my CDs or my bonds aren't paying much. I need to, I need a, I just need a higher yield or an interest rate. And all of a sudden you take somebody who's lived on CDs or lived on short-term high quality bonds and suddenly they're, they're extending their maturities and they're gonna put up with much more fluctuation than they're probably used to or they will go into, they'll reduce the quality of their holdings, or they completely change their asset allocation in the pursuit of current yield, and they'll go from a, a very stable investment paradigm to things like buying dividend, high dividend stocks or high yielding stocks for a three or four or 5% dividend yield. And now you have a completely different dynamic and one that usually doesn't end well for people that don't respect that, uh, you know, those 30% declines are not unusual. 40% uh, declines, for that matter, are not that unusual. So just kind of a, I guess that would be a theme on the front end of the show that this is a good time to just visit your asset allocation, make sure you're, you're at peace with um, always the inevitable and potential temporary declines. Uh, Dave, I'm going to shift a little bit. You wrote uh, a blog that says, am I the only one that knows? And uh, it's really kind of on the premise of the idea that there are certain people that can act on special information. They're able to make the decisions on investments. You know, before we talk about some of the conclusions, um, what was the motivation behind the blog, Am I the Only One Who Knows? I think it was honestly just uh, life experience talking to a lot of it was people my age who are a little bit less financially uh, savvy, but I hear you know older people a lot of times make the same mistake, which is they're basically making investment decisions based on something that they read or heard or believe about a particular company or an asset class or sector, um, whatever it may be. And basically, it it goes something along the lines of, you know, well, say it's Apple or whatever sure. is doing really really well. They're about to release the iPhone eight. And earnings are projected to be really good. I'm, I want to buy this company for that reason. And the thing that people forget is that all of that information is not like only known by you. It's it's well known by pretty much everyone who owns Apple stock that all of those things are about to take place. That Apple's a healthy company. It has strong earnings. It's been growing rapidly, and because of that. The prices of Apple stock or whatever company it might be already reflect all of those positive attributes of that company. And that's built into the current price, theoretically. And so that eliminates the future opportunity for um, outsized profits, essentially. So, you know, you, even, if, even if you know you're not the only one that knows that, obviously there's, there's hundreds if not thousands mm -hmm. of analysts that have even better information than you have uh, that already know that as well. Exactly. And that's what I tell people is, I mean, is you being a non-financial person, by the time you've heard about this stuff, it is way too late. Like, you're not even close. And, and people have acted on it, and that drives the price to where it probably ought to be, or at least the market's best assessment of what a reasonable value is. Is that... Does, that, does this get down to that issue that we talk about, you know, kind of markets being efficient? And what do you mean by that when, when you say that to people? And, 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 bef and before you answer that, I noticed that on your blog, which is a good blog, and people might want to go, there's a short video that you included from Dimensional Fund Advisors. And I think that helps explain how markets 
pretty much instantaneously incorporate all the available information, but how do you describe how it works in your own words? Yeah, I mean, I think the video probably does a much better job than what I'm about to attempt, but the way I think about it is you have so many people trading with each other, um, and they all have a piece of information and probably a lot of information about the company that they're trading, and what happens is the overlapping minds of all of those people basically drive prices to a pretty fair and reasonable price. It doesn't mean perfect. I think that's the mistake people make is they think, well, markets, like saying they're efficient, they think perfect. And there's no way that's the case because right. the price was, you know. Uh, this, $100 one day and then tomorrow and, and it's tomorrow. $82 and see the market was wrong. And then that's actually another mistake people make as a little tangent is that actually suggests that the mar that markets are very efficient because what happens is new new information comes out and the market incorporates that information really quickly, which is kind of the premise of this blog is, you know, say uh, new information comes out that some, you know, pharmaceutical company comes out with a breakthrough drug. What happens is the price is going to pop up, I mean, very, very quickly, like within a matter of minutes. And then going forward, the price kind of levels out to like how stock prices normally behave. It might have a positive return, but no higher than it did before that news came out. So you have to basically, um, you'd have to have insider information and know these things are going to happen before it's publicly available to really profit from them. And to do that is illegal. So that's kind <laughs> of a moot. Well, I would at least <laughs> yeah, I would warn exactly. people about that. Even though it's illegal, it's kind of interesting. You will see companies that are going to have a good earnings report. You right. will see a little bit of a run-up before the earnings there, there, report. The yeah. market kind of anticipates it, and I don't know if it's a lucky guess or if some people with some privileged information. No, there's say. no question in my mind that that's where professionals have an edge from a maybe a trading standpoint. I don't think they can do it and run a mutual fund, for example, and, 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 and capture that consistently. Uh, but I, I, I've noticed that over my 33 years. It's kind, of, it's, it's kind of interesting how all of a sudden there's a lot of accumulation in the you know, month ahead of the earnings announcement. But part of that could be speculation. But David, not all of it's concrete information. Isn't some of it just expectations? You know, how much a company's sales might grow, uh, things like that, how successful the new iPhone 8's going to be. Um, all that gets incorporated too, as far as even just expectations. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's a really important thing too, is it's not just information that we know to be the case, but it's like, if it's pretty unanimously agreed upon, that a company is going to have very strong earnings in the future, that future expectation is going to be baked into the price. Or like I think of in this one, I kind of think of like sectors or like new technologies. Like someone might say, well, I want to invest in this company because they're working on carbon nanotube technology and I think that's the future and blah, blah, blah. And maybe that's the case, but you're not the only person that knows about this. And that's why I titled the blog the way that I did is I think that's a really good sanity check or kind of a, a way to catch yourself from making mistakes. <laughs> Ask yourself, am I the only one that knows this yeah. information? And even if you know a sector, you have to choose the right uh, uh, firm there. I mean, in uh, the early 1900s, automobiles were going like gangbusters, but 90% of the automobile firms you'd invest in, you would uh, lost all your money. So you have to not only choose the sector, you have to choose the right uh, firm in that sector. And a lot of times by the time you choose it, I think of the railroads, the original railroad kings, you know, they were the titans and made, you know, all the money in the world practically. And the public noticed that and they wanted to get in too. So they put it on another layer of tracks, another set of tracks. <laughs> and, and I really think the classic example is the dot-com bubble. Um, 
you know, it was it was clear to pretty much everybody that this internet thing um, was going to be transformative, right? I mean, and and the internet has not only done everything everybody thought it would; it has transformed it in ways they never could have imagined. Yet most people went broke, and, and, and so I think that's that's the observation. So and. And that, I mean, my main motivation for this blog is to prevent people from making that mistake because I see people make it time and time again. But it's intuitive. That's, mm-hmm. that's naturally intuitive. You know, you, you read books even, and there's books authored, and they say, well, when, you, when you're at Walmart and you see that there's this new product that everybody's buying, that's the stock you should buy. Well, you're not the only person that's observed that. Yeah, right. There's a more mundane example. Uh, sometimes I talk to uh, students about, say, say you want to go into farming, would you buy the uh, very best farmland, uh, the, the highest productivity and so on? And students say, sure, if I'm going to be a farmer, I want to have the best farmland. But the problem here is the best farmland is extremely expensive. So, and everybody knows where it is. Yeah. Or a, another, That's a great example. Another example for people who are sports fans is it's kind of like it's not enough to know the team that's going to win. You have to beat the spread. The fact that everyone knows a particular sports team is better than the team that they're, than their opponent, uh, that gets better incorporated into the spread and and it's not enough to know that you have to win they have to win by more than what basically people think they will win by and and also the cost that it takes to try to make these predictions and then to get the research and get the information it's very costly and so that really gets down to this idea guys and 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 fred we were talking about this you asked me you know back 30 years ago was vanguard doing a lot of advertising and i couldn't really recall it seemed to me it was a lot of print but when you really look what's going on, it's a titanic shift of where investors are investing their money. They're they're not they're taking it away from the Goldman Sachs of the world and the big giant, you know, glamorous firms. And you know, you have this Vanguard group is becoming the just the monster out there, period. Maybe maybe not in the aggregate, but from a single size, I think they're like at four trillion now. It's just a huge number. Yeah, and fees are are Approaching zero for uh, really large uh, index funds is down to uh, two or three basis points. And even like the uh, 529 plan now is reorganizing in Illinois, and it's going down from maybe 15 to 10 basis points. So even when it's already low, it's still being – there's still pressure pushing, pushing downward. And that seems to be – it seems to be from that standpoint, and it should be that way when you think about it. An index fund is run by computers. It's digits. It's a digits game are going to run to zero, essentially zero plus just enough to make somebody to make a few dollars. <clears throat> and you can go out and buy essentially the total U.S. market now for three or four one-hundredths of a percent. Well, to put that in comparison, you could buy an actively or professionally managed mutual fund that may cost 150 basis points instead of just three or four. Yeah, so, but, but seeking lower fees, once you're down to five basis points, it's probably not worth it to change your uh, activity to get down to two, three basis it, points. It, 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 it doesn't become the difference maker yeah. anymore. I just think it's, uh, you know, what you guys are mentioning, it's all evidence that I think people's minds are really kind of shifting from this golden ticket mentality when it comes to investments. You know, I have to find that next hot stock or I have to time the market before it just shoots the lights out. You really don't need to do that to have a successful investment experience. You can stay low cost and diversified and you can have a great investment experience. You're, you're likely to have a better one, in fact. Yeah. So then it really gets back to what I've always maintained. If you, if you can keep your costs very low and if you get your asset allocation mix right, the mix between the great companies of America and the world and bonds or CDs and those fixed income, uh, 
it becomes after that it's, it's just a patience game a benign neglect game it's keeping your head straight when when things are either an irrational exuberance or irrational pessimism um, which really gets people uh, i'm not sure which one loses people more money uh, after the dot-com crash i i don't i don't really know and i've never measured it but they do damage it really all circles back to what we've been saying on this show for decades uh, keep your cost low, keep your asset allocation aligned with your uh, with, what you want to have happen. First and foremost, have a plan so that, that, that the basically the plan drives the portfolio allocation and the investment strategy. When it comes to your investment strategy, uh, have the least amount of cost that you can do. Uh, be broadly diversified, and then how you behave becomes the primary determinant of your lifetime outcome. And I think more and more people are picking up on it. And as I said, I think if there's any one thing I've done right after 33 years with my clients is condition them to recognize that that kind of is the holy grail of, of successful investing. So, um, so hopefully if people are doing that, they've become wealthy. Well, wealthy is now, you know, from when I was a kid, I remember, um, you know, I was probably seven years old and talking to my next door neighbor, you know, Howie Stern and Bob Stern. We were talking about certain people that were billionaire. I mean, a billionaire. We wouldn't even imagine what a billion was back then, but a millionaire. And can you imagine having a million? And I'm not here to say a million dollars isn't a lot of money, but it's not 1967 money. Um, and I just happened to notice that according to a new survey from Charles Schwab, Americans say it takes an average of 2.4 million to be considered wealthy in quotes. As for how much it takes to be financially comfortable, the survey respondent said it's an average of 1.1 million. Well, guys, by that standard, less than 10% of American households qualify as comfortable since less than 10% have over a million dollars. So that kind of begs the question, how much money is really enough? Now, we are substantially, all of our clients are retired. We are retirement planning specialists. That's every everything we do centers around uh, the idea of retirement and as I say, everything we do is, is, is trying to make people's lives, you know, happier, more fulfilled, better. And so we think in terms of retirement. And I think that's when a lot of people start thinking about how much is enough. Is Usually it's in the context of can I retire? Uh, certainly one million dollars isn't what it used to be. Um, I think it brings up kind of a broader question about what is wealth and the fact that it's really not a specific dollar. I mean, if there's anything you guys have learned, I learned it a long time ago, but I have a lot of years experience. Fred, you're probably the same as me. Uh, your, your definition of wealth morphs uh, over time, decade to decade. Um, yeah, no, not only the, uh, the amount, but also the form. Uh, uh, most people dismiss Social Security as kind of a, a minor thing, but if you look at the present value of that kind of it's contract, it's uh, extremely valuable. And, and same thing with people on defined benefit uh, pension plans, the, the present value of that, the, how much it would be cost to buy it is really huge. In fact, when I, I do it a little differently than a lot of people. They'll say, well, what kind of annuity would you have to do to buy that income stream? But when you have an inflation-adjusted income stream like Social Security is or like a university pension is, I do a little game when they, you know, people, like you said, Fred, will come in and go, well, I have Social Security, but it's not that much. And Well, maybe between a husband and wife, it's couple of thousand dollars. I said, okay, well, I'm going to divide $24,000 by the 20-year treasury inflation protected security at maybe a quarter percent. Anyway, uh, I'm going to get to give you the wrong number, but but not not all that different. It might, I might say 
you know, you might have to, you would have to have $12 million in Treasury inflation protected securities to have that check show up for life. Now, the difference is your kids wouldn't get any at the end because once you, once you wake up on a cloud, your least pension goes away, Social Security goes away ultimately. That's the difference, but it's a. It's but an annuity a, would be uh, not $12 million, but it'd be a lot. It'd be a lot if you went out and priced how much it would take to buy that. So, this kind of is what is, what is wealth. Um, it's not a specific dollar amount, Paul, but kind of what's your take on this after kind of observing clients now for almost five years? Well, and I think you guys kind of went in a couple directions with it because you I usually do. Yeah, well, I, that's that's a symptom of the way you host the show. But um, <laughs> I just kind of noticed that you guys kind of took a, an income stream and then thought about what's the present value of that. And that just shows how fixed we are to dollar amounts or a certain amount of money in your bank account defining wealth. Getting to a number. Exactly. A specific number. I mean, you see the the commercials, or at least you used to, you know, people carrying around their retirement number and stuff like that. And I just kind of have to laugh. Because I have mine tattooed. Absolutely. <laughs> $4. But um, I just think people need to start thinking about wealth is how much they need to spend. And I think the survey kind of surprises people that, wow, someone could have over a million dollars and not be considered wealthy. Well, it really kind of depends how much they need to spend. If someone needs to only withdraw twenty or $30,000 per year, well, they're very wealthy with a million bucks. They're never going to run out of money. They have enough to do everything they need to do. Now you consider a person that spends $200,000 a year and only has a million bucks. Well, that person's probably going to run out of money in under a decade. So they're not very wealthy. So it's really just thinking about what is wealth to me and what does it take to do the things I need to do. And you can back into a number after sure. that. But I just think that you shouldn't put the cart before the horse. I mean, you should really think about what does my income stream need to be? Because that's really what's going to define whether you in your personal situation are, quote unquote, wealthy or not. And we find most often when we're talking to a prospective client, uh, they don't really have a number in their mind. They usually they know or have a concept of what it takes to run their life as they you know see fit. And uh, it's just interesting to have that conversation. But the one of the takeaways I've noticed, and I think we've all begun to talk about that a little bit, is <clears throat> we have a lot of millionaire next door clients. Now, it may not be exactly a million, but, you know, it could be someone who works at Kraft since high school. They've put money in the 401k plan and in the profit sharing that was there. And suddenly, and they live in a $125,000 house that they've lived in their whole life. They didn't buy cars every three years. They didn't go on Facebook vacations, you know, the fancy vacations that prove to everybody how much money you're spending. And what, what it's really, I, I, I've been telling uh, prospective clients now, it's really this kind of, the it's the intersection of being frugal uh, because good savers are naturally frugal people. That's where this increased savings comes from. Now, there are exceptions to this, but I'm talking about the vast majority of the millionaires next door I run into. The reason they have enough money to retire beyond their standard of living while they're working is partially because of that savings, but that savings is a result of being reasonably frugal. And it's the intersection of frugal and savings is where, well, where we find out that most people that walk through our doors they don't know it walking in, but they know it walking out even after the first meeting. The vast majority are walking into a retirement earlier than they thought and stronger than they thought. And it's because everybody's wealth uh, concept is differently. I have people that are fabulously wealthy living on 3000 a month or 2500 a month. And I have some clients that probably aren't don't feel wealthy, and I can tell them they can spend 30000 a month from their investments and their income streams. Uh, so... So it is kind of an interesting concept. It certainly morphs. Well, 
part of what we're identifying here is this inflation cost, right, Fred? Right. I mean, the reason a million dollars today isn't as much as it was when I was seven years old in 1967 talking to my pals is because the cost of living has gone up significantly uh, over that you know 50-year period. And that's why this it's a, it is a moving number as far as how people feel, probably. If you would ask that question in 1967, I don't think it would have been a million dollars or 2.4 million. It would have been, you know, if someone had $300,000, they were, they were set. Um, but, you know, when we look at that, uh, you know, there's a lot of reports that we're in this bit of a retirement crisis. Uh, I hear about it a lot. You guys hear about it a lot. Fred, you, you hear about it and you, you've served on and still do, right. uh, you know, pension fund boards um, where it's kind of the suggestion that, you know, almost everybody's going to have a hard time in retirement. But when I look at reports uh, of retirement crisis, uh, most of them, I think, are off the mark. If you look at some of these think tanks that actually study this stuff, one of them was while one study found 88% of Americans fear retirement crisis, another found that 74% of retirees live comfortably. That's been my experience, at least from the people that walk through my door. Right. I think uh, there's kind of a, a divide here that uh, – uh, if you look at uh, earlier studies of younger people, are you saving enough for retirement? The answer usually is no. But if you look at uh, people in retirement, most of them are, are getting along, and some get along really well. So one of the, uh, you know, one problem is not having enough to live in retirement. The other problem is uh, what do you do when you have to take money out of your um, 401K or IRA and you don't want to take it out? And that's, that's obviously a good problem, but it's a different one. It's just interesting. You look at these surveys and they're all over the place. You know, in one survey, it said 88% of Americans agree that the nation faces a retirement crisis, uh, crisis according to a 2017 survey by the Washington, D.C.-based National Institute of Retirement Security Pension Research Group. Uh, but, you know, there's this small group of kind of vocal scholars out there that seems to be opposing the opposite viewpoint, guys, is your take all three of you is the is it possible that this retirement crisis is a little oversold or overblown i think it's kind of playing to people's fears a little bit um is surprise surprise it, the financial could, media never does that could part of it even be uh, policy driven or or your 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 politics it trickles down demographics of course people I, I think they've realized it's a great way to get elected to create some sort of problem that you need to come in there and fix and i think people like to throw stones at retirement because there's a little bit of emotional outrage you know the idea of retiring and then being poverty stricken or something like that but I mean, if you really look at the government's own data, um, if you look at the 2016 Census Bureau report, I mean, just about 8%, 8.8% of people 65 and older were impoverished. I mean, if you compare that to younger people under 18, which is about 20%, I mean, it's half. Um, it's about 50% lower than people 18 to 65. So, I mean, the idea that there's this catastrophic poverty risk in retirement seems to be more... Uh, it seems to be more uh, sensation than fact. But I think also we're, we're probably thinking about a slice of the population. Your clients are not oh, sure they're not representative, but, but they have assets. So if you're poor all your life, it's probably not surprising you're not going to do particularly well in retirement. But uh, those are not the people that are worrying about their investments and passive right. versus active and exactly. those kind of things. In, in fact, when you look, consider 42% of people that draw a Social Security check, that's 100% of their uh, their living uh, income. 
Um, and that's not really a very high number. I guess the saving grace, though, is it replaces a higher percentage of their income. Oh, it does, for you sure. Know, I mean, a much that, higher And it's percent. designed to do so. Yeah, actually, uh, a study by the IRS um, actually found that they actually they analyzed people's tax return and found that people experienced no income drop-off, or most people experienced no income drop-off after claiming Social Security. Actually, the median household income rises after retirement. Well, that, you know, I, I, never I mean, it's a completely conflicting information when you're talking about a crisis. But, well, but the one way to f- measure it is from tax return, because you can see the before and you can see the after, and I hadn't really thought about that. So that, that's, that's an interesting study by itself. The other thing people forget, I think, is sometimes... Uh, the expenses that go away for most retirees is, you know, you don't have a mortgage payment a lot of the time. Now, it doesn't apply to everyone, but I would say the majority of retirees, at some point in their life, their mortgage payment's gone. Well, um, yeah, and right. the other one, you're not saving anymore. Right. So a portion of your your income that you needed when you were working was going towards saving for retirement. Well, you don't need that anymore because you're retired. And then um, usually it's you pay less in taxes when you're retired because – you know, only up to 85% of your Social Security benefits are taxed. If you're a low-income person, it could be zero. Right. Um, Illinois doesn't tax uh, withdrawals from IRAs, so that helps a little bit. So you usually pay a little bit less in tax. So a lot of times you need less income to maintain the same lifestyle that you had prior to retirement. At least from a gross income, yeah, and yeah. then after tax. So why, the, why the, all the talk of the crisis then, guys? Well, the article I read said it's basically people are basing their assumptions on highly flawed estimates of what it costs to be comfortable in retirement. And that makes sense. I mean, a comfortable retirement means different things for every single person. So to try to make a sweeping generalization about what people are going to need to be comfortable in their retirement, it, it gets down to the fact that you have to make assumptions. And many times those assumptions are, I guess, a little pessimistic. I wonder if part of it, and this is just kind of a thought, but it's just the fact that so many that pensions are so much less common, you know, like a defined benefit pension back in the 1980s. I bet a lot more retirees had sure. had those defined benefit pensions than That's pretty much people retiring nowadays. I think so, so. but those pensions uh, weren't as generous as a lot of people think. So there are many fewer of them now in the private mm-hmm. sector, but they were – in a sense, kind of a supplement to Social Security. And yeah. I just think from an emotional standpoint, though, the idea of a fixed income stream from a pension versus having to do it myself and withdraw from an investment portfolio that might be bouncing around, I think I think you're right, Dave. I think there might have been a little mental security to that. And there is. There's actually research showing that people who have um, higher fixed income, guaranteed income sources in retirement are happier than people with less guaranteed income which I thought was kind of interesting, but it, it totally makes sense because it just yeah. seems safer. You don't have to watch your portfolio sure. fluctuate. I mean, there, there's, the, that, uh, there's that emotional roller coaster. Yeah, defined benefit is not always a, a guarantee. There are defaults, yeah. and people found that they, what, what they were promised when they retired is not what they're getting. When they're well, and, and, and when you consider that most private pensions are fixed, they don't yeah. go up with any inflation. And when you know we know that over a two- to three-decade retirement, at least historically speaking, your costs to do – what you want to do and need to do at least double and very well may triple. Uh, that's, you know, it can be a little elusive there too, that safety idea. But on the front end of retirement, uh, people seem to be more comfortable. Um, one of the things we're going to talk about in a minute, we may have a caller here, but we talked about some of the costs that go away. I want to talk about, uh, I think we are going to have a call here, but when we get done with the call, maybe we'll have time to talk about some of the uh, overestimating some costs, but what are the potentially underestimating. So we're going to go to line one, and it's John. John, welcome to On the Money. How are you doing this morning? Doing great, thanks. 
You're uh, talking about a topic I've been thinking about earlier in the show, which is my asset allocation. Yes, sir. I'm recently retired, um, and what I see in uh, the stock market since the election is just up, up, up. I'm currently 70-30 equities and uh, bonds, and wondering what would be wrong with uh, going down to 50-50, taking some of the profits off the table now and waiting for a correction. Well, I like I, I so I would separate those two issues of the waiting for a correction because now you're really saying, well, what 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 would be wrong with market timing? It just doesn't work. However, let's address the first part, uh, and I would say, for someone who's already retired, to be seventy percent equity probably has would want to have a goal. If I'm seventy percent, we're generalizing here a little bit. Probably mm-hmm. means I have a pretty good eye on how much of a legacy I live. Outside of that. I'm backing down towards 60% or 50% or 40%. If it's just about me and my spouse or just about me and my cost of living, uh, there aren't all that many rewards of being beyond 50 or 60% equity where the rewards come for people. And I have a lot of clients that are, well, in their 80s and they have 80% or 85% in, uh, in, in equities in the stock market. But that's for their goal is really, I'm not really going to need to spend it, Paul. This is really for my children and grandchildren. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think for most people, I've come to the conclusion that to be as much as 70% is probably unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Now, you may find out accidentally after the fact that sometime in the next year or two, that that ended up being a pretty good idea, but there's no lock that that's going to be the case. And at that point, you can always visit that. But what I warned you about is getting intoxicated by it because suppose you do that today and today marks the beginning of a 10 or 15 or a 20 or 30% decline. Um, you will have convinced yourself now that market timing is the way to go. And, and just trust me, after 33 years, I've never seen anybody that didn't regret it after enough time. Yeah, and I've never, been a, I've never been a market timer. I've always been a buy and hold. But now as I sit here and watch things, I'm less emotional about the market. And yes, I'm sir. thinking, well, everything's up. Why well, you not, you why could not make it uh, a little bit easier by calling it rebalancing, going back yes. to where you were a year ago in terms of the percentages. And that, that would not be market timing. Mm-hmm. It was, and, and, I think, and I think honestly, and you guys hear me say it, and you cringe a lot of times with clients. Look, you always have the option of increasing your equity if the market's down 30% and you realize it may not really be buying me anything that I want, but maybe it leaves my kids more money because if history's any guide, uh, this too shall pass. I don't know whether I have another 20 or 30% more to go now that I'm decided to get back in, so to speak. So I think you use it, if you use it in a healthy way, if it's even possible to say, I'm going to exercise my option to take some fluctuation off the table, fluctuation that likely will not buy me anything I really want. I, and, and then you get into that decline. Go ahead, Dave, because I know you don't so, like this idea. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, but it's okay. I was going to say the trap you don't want to fall into is changing your allocation every two, three, four years. My best advice would be, you know, if you take some fluctuation off the table now, stick with it. That'd yeah. be, I, I just think simplify your life, choose an allocation that you can keep basically throughout your entire retirement, keep it simple. And I think and that's, that's probably the And then the do best. the rebalancing that Dr. Gertz was talking about. And, and that's probably the best answer. I don't always give the best answers because I'm older and I just, you know, my <laughs> nature is when I see a 30% decline, I can't help it. You know, when everybody else is trying to get out, I'm usually find myself, you know, rubbing my hands together and saying, ooh, I think I might bite off a little bit more. But it's not because I expect to outperform anything or outdo anything. It's just that 
okay, uh, this too shall pass, and maybe there'll be some rewards for me. If there aren't, I can live with it. Uh, but I think David's, yeah, I think David's advice is better uh, because it you won't you won't get tricked into trying to do this from time to time, and that that's I would just I would encourage anybody to not do that. Yeah, I, I think the way I put it sometimes is I don't like it when people tinker with their portfolio, you know, constantly making adjustments or things. It's like it shouldn't it really shouldn't change very often. See, David thinks that asset allocation is like a bar of soap. The more you handle it, the smaller it gets, and, uh, <laughs> and in reality, that is kind of true is what happens. So, John, I like your idea on the front part of it. What you do after that, I'm not going to encourage you to do anything beyond that. I think David's advice to settle on an asset allocation that unless something really changes in your life, you can pretty much stick with it and, uh, and, and just go in peace. Makes sense as usual. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Great call. I think a lot of people have that on their minds, and, and I probably talk a little too much about doing those things. Um, briefly, guys, we're, uh, we're going to take another, uh, another minute. Well, I don't even want to get into that. Actually, because, can I yeah, can ahead. I ask a question yep. since we were kind of on the retirement crisis thing and whether it's really yeah, more ahead. of a function of people's minds or objective reality. When people come into our office and they're worried about retirement, right. is it usually better or worse than they expect? A vast majority of the time, it's better. Now, as, as Dr. Gert said, that might because the only people that are going to walk through our door are people that have accumulated some assets, not necessarily had a high income. I will say that a lot of our a lot of our spectacular clients never had a high income at all, had a modest income, but they get a they get a, a reward in retirement of sooner and better than they had ever imagined. So I would say, on balance, by far most people walk out on a cloud uh, because usually in that first meeting we can give them a very reasonable representation of what their retirement looks like at this point. Well, one more thing I want to mention. We do have a seminar tomorrow night on retirement. A couple, it filled up really quickly, but two spots just recently. Uh, people had to end up not going to be able to make it. So there's two spots remaining. It's tomorrow at 6.30 to 8 p.m. at our Rudy Wealth Learning Center. I'm watching the time here, Jim, on my watch. Uh, in this event, Rudy Wealth Management Team will walk you through the challenges facing those planning retirement, some of the things we talked about today. The different decisions you have to make and how to approach them ultimately teach you reasonable expectations for things like withdrawal rates. That's a big one. That's worth the, that's worth the free admission alone. And ultimately <laughs> help you decide if you are retirement ready. You can go online and sign up by going to rudywealth.com and look at the resources tab or by giving us a call at 217 356 1400. Jim, I think I'm out of time. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.